This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. For this week's episode, we're going to be learning about the rare disease known as CF, also known as cystic fibrosis. We're going to be learning from a first-hand experience, and from that, what are the existing and future solutions and how drug policy impacts cystic fibrosis. So what is it? According to CF.org, cystic fibrosis is a progressive genetic disease that causes persistent lung infections and limits the ability to breathe over time. Additionally, according to CF Canada, cystic fibrosis is the most common fatal genetic disease affecting Canadian children and young adults. At present, there is no cure. Just looking at the numbers, it's estimated that one in every 3,600 children in Canada has CF. More than 4,300 Canadian children, adolescents, and adults with cystic fibrosis attend specialized CF clinics. In terms of solutions for this disease and its management, various drug solutions are available for those living with CF. However, these solutions only really address the symptoms of the disease and not the root genetic cause. One solution that does exist internationally is a new drug known as Trikafta. So on October 21st, 2019, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved a new groundbreaking medication called Trikafta. Now this drug was developed by a group called Vertex Pharmaceuticals, and this was done over several decades. Trikafta has the potential to treat 90% of patients with CF. This is a major improvement from other existing drug solutions that have impacted less amount of people and have had more modest impacts. One major difference between Trikafta and other existing CF drugs is that it addresses the genetic root of cystic fibrosis instead of alleviating symptoms. This has resulted in major improvements of lung function. Now, in terms of a jurisdictional scan, Australia, Denmark, England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, Italy, Sweden, Norway, Greece, Spain, Luxembourg, and the United States all provide access to gene modulators similar to Trikafta for CF. Sadly, in Canada, Trikafta has not been approved. So what are Canada's drug policies? Well, within Canada, the drug approval process consists of three main steps. Number one, after a new drug submission is filed with the Health Products and Food Branch, or HPFB, of Health Canada, the department reviews information of the drug's safety and effectiveness, as well as results of preclinical and clinical trials. If this review concludes that the drug is beneficial and any associated risks can be managed, it gets approved for marketing in Canada. After this approval, the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health, or CADETH, undertakes an additional review of the drug, now from a cost-benefit assessment angle. This review plays a critical role in determining drug coverage and reimbursement in Canada by provincial, federal, and territorial drug plans. The last step is where public and private plans decide whether or not to cover the drug and to what extent. Only then do drugs become available to patients that need them. While this process is necessary and highly regulated, it also comes with some caveats, as we'll see later in this episode. To chat all things cystic fibrosis and drug policy, with us today is a CF advocate, the executive chef at the table, and our new friend, Hunter Gaindo. 
Hunter, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Our first question right off the bat is, how are you doing? Uh, I'm great. I'm uh, excited to be here, excited to talk to you too. I, uh, I've been good. I went for a nice snowshoe today. It was a perfect day oh, out. That's it's great. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we're so happy to have you here, but you know, our first uh, formal question is, could you describe a little bit for our listeners, what is cystic fibrosis? Yeah. So uh, cystic fibrosis or CF, as I'll probably reference it a lot, is uh, it's a genetic disease. It's the most common fatal genetic disease amongst young Canadians. Wow. There's about 4,400 Canadians with CF. Um, and what it is is a, a, a mutation in one of our genes that prevents the, the free flow in and out of chloride from every epithelial cell in your body, okay. which is, is scientific jargon, really. <laughs> um, but essentially what that means is that uh, our bodies produce this thick, sticky mucus that clogs up our airways and uh, makes it makes it hard to breathe you know compromises lung function and really is kind of the perfect breeding ground for lung infections mm. um that that's probably the the most basic way of explaining it but cf has a lot of other effects on other organ systems everything from the digestive system to the reproductive system there's all sorts of craziness happening there um a lot of people <laughs> with cf they're pancreas doesn't function properly mm. so that makes it really hard for them to digest fats and with that absorb fat soluble vitamins and all the nutrients from their food so it's it's often the case that it's hard for people with cf to keep on weight often cases the lung infections will lead to hospitalizations in people with cf in 2013 cf patients spent 24,500 days in hospital the equivalent of 67 years of hospital resources in wow. one year. Wow. Um, but there's uh, a lot of care and attention that goes into the disease outside of hospital, at home, and just in, in our day-to-day -day lives. Mm. Wow. It's incredible just the different areas that this disease does impact people, as you said. You know, first and foremost, obviously, you know, lungs and respiratory but of course, other things into reproductive and pancreas and other things. So it really has a, you know, outward effect into not just the primary organ, the lungs, but in many other areas, creating a number of different day-to-day -day challenges, as you said, for folks living with cystic fibrosis. Um, as of right now in Canada, what are some of the different solutions that are available to treat people uh, with these day-to-day -day challenges with CF? Yeah, so CF care in Canada is, is wide ranging. There's a lot, like I said, a lot of it's done in hospital, in clinics, and at home. Mm. Um, the, the treatment options are probably most prominently would be antibiotics, which are either oral antibiotics, inhaled antibiotics, or IV antibiotics, or any combination of the three of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, Physiotherapy is a big part of it, not wow. in the sense mm -hmm. of like stretching your legs and, and physiotherapy in the way that people typically think of it, but um, airway clearance is a, is a big thing. Many of us spend several hours a day using different physiotherapy techniques to move the thick, sticky mucus out of our airways and try to cough it up. Mm. Um, 
like I said, a lot of people, their uh, pancreas doesn't work properly or doesn't work at all. So digestive enzymes are a huge part of CF care where people will have to take handfuls of, of enzymes prior to eating or drinking anything to help their body break that down when they wow. do wow. eat it. So yeah, in, in some cases that's, you know, 50, 60 pills a day for some people, just the enzymes alone that no. they're calculating how many calories and how much fat is in what they're about to eat. And then taking the corresponding number of enzymes to be able to digest that. Um, I think Cystic Fibrosis Canada has a stat that's uh, that people with CF in Canada spend the equivalent of four months of full-time work doing CF-related therapies every year, whether that be inhaled drugs, physiotherapy, time in clinics, any of those various things. Wow. Wow. That's, I think you know, you'd expect medication to be part of the treatment options, but hearing about physiotherapy, hearing about, you know, the other precautions that folks have to constantly take, it's just, it's a part of, you know, your life that you can't really kind of look at on its own. It's, it has to weave its way into everything you do. And that sounds really stressful to deal with. Um, when it comes to treatment, we know in terms of medication, the, U the US, the UK, and several other European Union countries provide access to, to gene modulator drugs, which are a new type of drug which seek to cure the disease at the genetic level instead of just looking at symptoms. One such drug, which we have spoken about earlier, you know, in phone calls is Trikafta, which is currently undergoing priority review um, within Health Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about how Trikafta differs from current treatment options that are available right now in Canada? Yeah, so uh, last October, the FDA was the first regulatory body in the world to approve Trikafta for use, mm -hmm. um, which was a, a huge glimmer of hope for the CF community around the world. This is mm -hmm. the the drug we've all been waiting for, although not a cure, it's the closest thing we have to it. And it's, it's really the biggest scientific breakthrough in modern history uh, to treat CF. <coughs> oh, sorry, I'm probably going to be coughing a lot during this. That's okay. Um, so what Trikafta does in, in contrast to the drugs that we currently use where they treat the symptoms of CF and try to control the symptoms as much as possible. Trikafta works on a genetic level and fixes the genetic mutation, trying to fix the cause of the problem versus the effects of the problem. Um, so that, that epithelial cell I was talking about that has trouble moving the chloride back and forth, Trikafta works directly on those cells and lets the chloride move more regularly through the cells, thus repairing many of the problems that come with CF. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's crazy the effects that this drug has in comparison to the, the current treatments that are available. Uh, prior to Trikafta's release, there was three other gene modulators designed by this same company, Vertex, out of Boston. Um, and then through development of those three drugs, they kind of ran with that scientific concept and developed Trikafta, which is a, a mixture of some of those drugs that already existed and some new molecules. 
to work in a triple combination therapy to to treat the underlying genetic cause. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for that answer, Hunter, about how Trikafta differs from current treatment methods in Canada. But can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits of, tri of Trikafta as a treatment method specifically and some of the impacts that it has? Yeah, definitely. So uh, more so than the, the current treatments being used and even more so than the current modulators that are available, uh, Trikafta can treat 90% of the CF population versus, you know, a uh, two or three percent that the other modulators can treat. Um, and like I said, because it treats the underlying cause of CF, we see dramatic results from its use. Um, in clinical trials, there's been anywhere from 13 to 16 percent lung function increase in a matter of two or three weeks of starting the medicine, which to some people, you know, 14% isn't that big of a number, but if your lung function is in the 30, 40, 50% range, uh, an increase of 14% lung function is huge. Mm. Um, recently, Dalhousie did a study last fall on the impact that Trikafta would have in Canada if it was made available in 2021. Um, and that study found that babies born in 2020 would see a 9.2 year increase to the median life expectancy if Trikafta is available to them through, you know, we'd say most of their life. Um, it would reduce severe lung disease by 60% in the Canadian CF population. And by 2030, it would reduce deaths in CF patients by 15%. Um, now, CF is typically diagnosed using a sweat chloride test where they attach two little electrodes to you, make that area sweat, they collect the sweat and then test the chloride level in the sweat. And so if that range is zero to 30, that would be just normal. They would, that would be a negative CF diagnosis. Uh, between 30 and 60, they would probably look into it and see if Maybe there's something there or uh, a mild case, if you will. And then anything over 60 is a definitive positive CF diagnosis. Um, people on Trikafta see that sweat chloride level significantly decrease in a matter of, of months to rates that they would technically clinically test negative for CF. There's a, a really nice kind of 100 day journal almost by a, a CF dad about his daughter's first 100 days on Trikafta. And before she started the drug, the day before, her sweat chloride was 108. So like I said, over 60 is a definitive diagnosis. And 28 days later, her sweat chloride was 21. And from a clinical perspective, like I said, under 30 would be, they would say, you do not have CF. So in a matter of four weeks, this drug took her from being very, very definitively having CF to clinically testing negative for the disease. Oh, wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's quite the drug. It's, we, we often say that, you know, although it's a, a rare disease drug and one that most people have not heard of, that 
you know, we would consider it to be one of the biggest medical advancements in history. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating just how this is such a major breakthrough, as you said, in the international community with the FDA in the United States. Um, however, taking things back to, to Canada, um, obviously right now it, it, it hasn't been a officially approved, as Sweta had mentioned, this is undergoing priority review by Health Canada. Um, however, up until it does get approved, if it does, knock on wood, we hope it does, as it is an incredible shift and advancement in solutions that are available. But before it does get approved, there are some other ways in Canada for folks with CF to access this uh, drug trikafta through what's known as you had educated us before when we had talked previously, the special access program. So for listeners, this is a program that allows folks with CF to access a drug that has not been approved um, by Health Canada for emergency use. Um, so for example, um, in the case where um, it was needed immediately, they could apply through this program and there then therefore access that. Um, how big a role do you think this program, the special access program, plays in ensuring life-saving treatment for folks with CF in Canada? Um, it's, it's a push and pull with the special access program. There's no doubt that its existence has saved many lives in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, the last stat that I heard was that roughly 150 Canadians have access to Trikafta through the special access program. But with that, it's also very much a band-aid solution to the actual drug review and drug access regimen in Canada. Right. Mm -hmm. That essentially, you know, to us, its existence kind of shows that the government acknowledges that there's a problem with access to these drugs and they need to put a quick band-aid on it to be able to get it to people, but they don't want to just fix the underlying issue and have <clears throat> access for for everybody that needs it. Right. It's uh, the people that have access to Trikafta through the special access program are essentially having their lives saved by the manufacturer and less so than by the government. Um, anybody that gets Trikafta through special access uh, is given that drug for life for free by the manufacturer. Um, and unfortunately, you essentially have to be on death's door to be able to be granted compassionate care to this drug. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's like, on one hand, it's really great that, you know, if you are in an emergency situation uh, and you really need access to this drug, then there's a way for folks to have that access. But on the other hand, definitely, if we're looking at, at, you know, ad adequate healthcare as being a right that should be accessible to everyone, then, you know, asking for people to be essentially knocking on death's door before having access to a life-saving drug just seems to go against those principles and against, you know, integrity of people in general. Now, I remember the first time you chatted with Emma and me, we were really not familiar at all with the drug approval process in Canada. Um, and that's something that, you know, you sent us a number of resources on and we chatted about as well. We did some research on our own as well. But, you know, would you be able to describe kind of the federal drug approval process in case our listeners are not familiar with it? Yeah, definitely. So... The, the drug approval process is, is 
you know, varying and covers many jurisdictions and has many hands in the process, if, if you can put it that way. Um, the, the very first step would be that a manufacturer has to submit that drug to Health Canada, where they review it for safety and efficacy, just like any other drug or uh, therapeutic product coming into the country. Health Canada will look at the clinical trial data from the manufacturer, any other supporting evidence and you know, the quality of its ingredients and so on and so forth to deem that it's safe for use. From there, the drug is not necessarily passed through, but overseen by a review body called the Patented Medicines Pricing Review Board. Mm. Now, the PMPRB, as it's often called, <laughs> is an independent and a quasi-judicial federal government body that operates at an arm's length from Health Canada. Now, mm. its mandate is to protect Canadians from quote-unquote excessively priced patented medicines. So they operate with a set of guidelines that kind of sets... Uh, these arbitrary price ceilings for drugs. And if the company doesn't want to fit within that price ceiling, then they're simply denied access to the Canadian market. Mm -hmm. Now the PMPRB in particular has come under fire as of recently because it's gone through a, a reconfiguring of its guidelines where they've amended them and added much more stringent guidelines in terms of the way they measure the quality of a drug and the way that they determine whether its price is quote unquote excessive. Mm -hmm. um, they use a measure called quality adjusted life years or quality, mm -hmm. which can be argued in, in many different directions as whether it's even ethical or not, considering you're, it's essentially a measure to put a price on a life and then mm -hmm. measure a drug's value based on that. <clears throat> um, so further from the PMPRB, the drug would move to CADETH, or the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technology of Health. And in Quebec, it moves to a body called INES, which acts in the same capacity as CADETH as a health technology assessment body. So this group of, of scientists and doctors and bureaucrats will review the drug's clinical trial data and the effects that it has on the patient and decide if its sticker price that the manufacturer has listed it for is worth the effects that it has. Mm -hmm. Now, Cadith also uses these quality unit of measures to decide if the impact on the patient's life is worth the price that the manufacturer is asking for. And this is where rare disease drugs often find a lot of problems because mm -hmm. Cadith isn't really uh, equipped with the tools to review rare disease drugs versus mm -hmm. everyday medicines. Um, so the effects of the, these drugs on folks with rare diseases are often miscalculated, if you will, because they are expensive. Mm -hmm. um, Cadith can also assign arbitrary prescribing criteria to these drugs where they'll say, you know, in the case of a, a CF drug, they'll say, we support its price and the funding of this drug, but only once people are at X lung capacity or mm -hmm. X lung function. 
And then the provinces then look at that and go, oh, okay, yeah, so we're going to list it, but we're going to choose to only give it to people that have, say, 60% lung function. Mm -hmm. So once reviewed by CADIS, that's uh, typically when a private drug plan could decide to list it. Mm -hmm. um, and then furthermore from that, in the public realm, the PCPA, or the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance, will then choose to either negotiate or not negotiate for the drug. So the PCPA is a, a body that, that negotiates on behalf of all provinces and territories, as well as some federal government agencies like Corrections Canada and the Department of National Defense on behalf of their drug programs. And they sit down with the manufacturers after looking at the CADIF review and negotiate a price that the provinces are going to pay for these drugs. Now, this often takes a lot longer than you would think. In some cases, it's several years before the PCPA will even enter negotiations for a new drug. And then from there, it can be several years of back and forth between the manufacturer and the PCPA to finally come to an agreement. Um, and they, they exist on the pretense that they'll get a better deal with the manufacturer because of the buying power they have as a pan-Canadian body. But manufacturers aren't oblivious to the fact that although the PCPA might sign a product listing agreement with the manufacturer and say, yes, okay, we've agreed on X number of dollars, we have a deal. From the PCPA, each province that takes part in it then has the option whether or not they're going to list it for their citizens or not. Mm -hmm. So the manufacturers enter these negotiations knowing that although they might get a deal with the PCPA, that's not to say that every jurisdiction in Canada is then going to be purchasing that medicine from them. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a really comprehensive answer. And I know, you know, we really appreciate just how detailed it is and how straightforward it is to understand. Now, um, Trikafta right now, as we know, is undergoing priority review as opposed to regular uh, review process for uh, use in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit how this priority review process differs from a regular review process? Yeah, so at the Health Canada level, there's actually two streams in which we would consider a fast track in layman's terms. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a priority review, which just involves the Health Canada part of that process. Mm -hmm. And that would typically reduce the Health Canada review to 180 days from the typical 300 plus days. Um, and then the second stream is an aligned review where it's a priority review by Health Canada and at the same time it's being reviewed by the health technology bodies, so CADIF, the PMPRB, and in Quebec, INES. So with the aligned review, which is the stream that Trikafta is on now, it's being looked at by Health Canada for its safety and efficacy and by CADIF and the PMPRB for its value at the same time and the goal is to have both of those processes done in 180 days awesome so thank you so much for explaining that for us uh, hunter you mentioned earlier you know that um, cad cadth is not kind of equipped to deal with 
uh, rare diseases and their medications because, you know, in the numbers game, if you're looking at it from strictly economic perspective, uh, uh, perspectives, then, you know, seeing 4,400 people um, getting uh, relief for uh, their condition kind of comes across as different as, you know, uh, let's say a flu vaccine or something of the like. So are there other kind of, you know, structural disadvantages that you think are built into the system when it comes to dealing with rare diseases? Absolutely. I would say that the the drug approval system in Canada and the way that whole system works definitely disproportionately affects Canadians with rare diseases. Um, again, to touch on the PMPRB, this is the biggest hurdle that rare disease communities are finding right now in the process with their new guidelines. Um, the low price ceilings that they're trying to set and in the new guidelines, it legislates in some cases a 97% and price reduction to be granted access into the Canadian market oh, wow. is incredibly harmful for rare disease drugs that need to be expensive because they cost tens or say hundreds of millions of dollars to develop and only treat a very small portion of the population. So to legislate a price ceiling to say that X drug is only worth this much and that's mm -hmm. that is disproportionately affects rare disease drugs over common drugs that aren't typically as expensive. Mm -hmm. um, one example would be Oracambi, which is the second generation CFTR modulator that mm -hmm. would have to have a 97% price reduction to fit in that quality adjusted life year threshold set by the PMPRB. Oh, wow. And then, like I said, Cadiff has very streamlined ways of looking at drugs and assessing their value based on their effects. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take into consideration the overarching differences between, like you said, a flu vaccine or a gene modulator that completely changes the lives of someone with CF. Mm -hmm. All of the different bodies you know, the PMPRB, Cadith, as well as NS, um, and just how those three bodies have to work together throughout this approval process, um, and your knowledge of the regular approval process, and then of course the priority approval process, and the intricacies of each of those, and as well just the challenges that are really presented in terms of the discrepancies between, like we've been talking about, you know, your average flu vaccine versus a life-saving gene modulator um, as we're talking about with Trikafta. So, you know, right off the bat, this is something that I especially appreciated when we had first chatted about to learn about all of this, but I know for listeners too, uh, this is really, really insightful and, and is something that um, you're very knowledgeable on. So that's that's been extremely useful, I think, for listeners Transitioning into, you know, a bit more of a focus on Trikafta now, um, looking at the price, it is quoted at $311,000 US dollar per patient per year. So um, once Health Canada has approved this, there are two ways in which this drug is integrated into Canada. So the first one, and what most listeners would be familiar with, is after it has been approved by Health Canada, as we've been talking 
talking about through the priority stream. Provinces would then decide whether or not if they would like to decide it on their health coverage drug list. Or the second option is that there be a national strategy where the federal government takes on the cost of providing this drug for those who are living with CF. So the first question is, between these two streams, one being the provincial stream, the other being the federal, uh, what do you think is most advantageous and most preferred for those who are living with CF? Or is there another method in which you think would be uh, best for folks who are living with CF? Yeah, so I think, and this is something we run into a lot with our advocacy, is that the sticker shock of that $311,000 a year, which no doubt is an incredible price for, you know, a few pills a day. Um, but with that, we have to acknowledge that that's not the price that the manufacturer is actually going to sell it for. Mm -hmm. And so the PCPA exists in its capacity to negotiate those drug prices down. No different than if you walk onto the lot of a Kia dealership and there's a SUV sitting there that's $50,000 on the sticker, you're not paying $50,000 to that vehicle when you drive it off the lot. It's just not how it works with high cost items like that. There's always a negotiation that happens. And when you're the government of a G7 country, you can have some serious bargaining power there. Um, now I'll just add that there's, there's a, also another stream that's very important to look at in this debate, if you will, that there's also the private coverage. So people with private drug plans and those private drug plans that also negotiate on their own behalf for these drugs. Um, in Canada, 35% of people get their drugs through a private drug plan. 42% of them get them through provincial formularies or government-funded programs and 22% of people just pay cash out of pocket wow. for their prescriptions. Wow. So there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both the provincial stream or a national strategy. Um, we definitely have been advocating hard for a, a rare disease strategy in Canada where, mm. you know, these drugs would be looked at differently, assessed differently, and then they're prices would be negotiated separate from other drug plans on the premise that the value held in a rare disease drug is far different from that. Um, in the last budget that the federal government put forward, they committed, I believe, a billion dollars over two years for a rare disease strategy. And mm -hmm. some of that money, of course, would go to paying for rare disease drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and then $500 million a year for the years after. Um, something that Cystic Fibrosis Canada in particular has been advocating for is a pan-Canadian rare disease strategy versus mm -hmm. a national rare disease strategy okay. where it would see involvement from the provinces and from the federal government collaboratively because right. the the needs of, of rare disease patients in every province are, are so different. Um, so yeah, if if I could decide, I would say a, a pan-Canadian rare disease strategy where mm. <clears throat> these drugs are paid for and assessed properly, get them into the hands of people as fast as possible would be ideal. But as we have it now, we, we need the, the pan-Canadian pharmaceutical alliance to negotiate in good faith for these drugs and 
get a price that is fair for the manufacturer and for patients and get access to these drugs. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. It's not kind of like a, a linear type thing. Like there, there's most certainly collaboration between the two jurisdictions due to the uniqueness of, you know, healthcare being a provincial jurisdiction, but also the close relationship the federal government plays in supporting that and funding that as well. And then, of course, when we take into consideration um, both the provinces and their role with drug lists, but as well the federal government in looking at things uh, such as what they've committed to over the next eight years, um, National Pharmacare and things like this, there's there's a lot of different things to consider, you know, when looking at a, a rare disease drug such as Trikafta. Um, one thing that you mentioned that really stuck out to me, and I know this was something we, we had chatted about before, um, at first the sticker price of 311,000 USD per patient per year seems really alarming to people at first and you know i'll disclose as myself you know as someone who is not living with cf i'm like wow that's a lot of money however when we look at you know other rare diseases as well as other forms of um, drug solutions we know that um, costs can be very you know commonly in this ballpark Uh, and we also know that uh, once this is approved, and again, knock on wood, we're, we're pushing forward with that priority review. Once this is approved, some other solutions may no longer be needed. As you said, Trikafta would be a really unique and efficient solution that's directly addressing the root problem at the gene as opposed to addressing different symptoms. So how would you describe the financial considerations of approving Trikafta in either that federal or provincial level? Yeah, so like you said, I think it's it's important to note that with a drug that's as dramatically effective as Trikafta, patients often come off of a lot of the other medicines they're on. Yep. There's, uh, you know, people in the States have had this drug for over a year now, almost 18 months, and we see that even in as little as 100 days on Trikafta, there's people coming off of virtually all of their other CF meds and only taking these few pills a day. Mm -hmm. Um, But in saying that there's, there's a cost benefit there of not paying for all of the other prescriptions, which on their own are already expensive. Like myself, I, the antibiotic that I take every day for the past 15 years is about six or $700 a month. Wow. Uh, I take another inhaled drug that's about $3,600 a month. Wow. Um, and I have some friends here on PEI actually that have CF and uh, grow different bacteria than I and have to take more specialized drugs. And their drugs are well into the six figures as it is, as wow. an annual cost to the province that you would essentially negate with bringing in these more precision medicines. Yep. Um, and like I said, the, the hospital stays for people with CF are often lengthy and frequent, mm-hmm. and that comes at a serious cost to the province too. Using, say, $6,500 a day, which is the price that you know, the PEI government would give you as a, a one-day stay in a PEI hospital. And it's interesting with people with CF because of our ability to catch other infections while we're in the hospital, there's a lot of precautions that are taken 
when you are admitted to a hospital. So mm -hmm. on PEI, for instance, for, for some reason, people with CF, including adults, are put on the children's wing. Um, <laughs> and I don't know who, who made that decision. Maybe it's because there's often more beds available there. But uh, those rooms are semi-private rooms, meaning that there's two beds in those rooms. But because of the contact precautions needed for someone with CF, only that CF patient is occupying that room. So you're taking up two beds in a hospital for one patient mm -hmm. while nurses and doctors and such are also gowning up in full PPE every time they enter the room and all of the additional transport precautions throughout the hospital. Um, this time last year, I was on about day eight of a 17-day stay at the QEH where I was on supplemental oxygen 24 hours a day and tethered to an IV pole while I got high-dose antibiotics. Um, so at, say, $6,500 a day, that one admission for me was roughly $110,000 at a cost to the province, wow. not including all of the other medicines that I was also on for the remainder of the year. Now, people in PEI have it different than in many other provinces because there is no specialized CF care in the province. Mm -hmm. So all CF patients, both adult and uh, pediatric, are seen in Halifax by the CF team there. Mm -hmm. So that adds a whole nother cost burden to both the province and the patient where the province is paying the province of Nova Scotia to take care of its patients. Yes. Mm -hmm. And through a few different access to information requests that I've filed with the government, we know that those, the simplest of those appointments where you're just going in, getting a lung function test, chatting with the doctor and getting your prescriptions refilled are about three thousand dollars a person for wow. that mm -hmm. say three hour visit with the doctor and then if you're getting any specialized tests while you're there that's obviously far more and far more mm. um it's it's interesting because we talk about this pmprb thing and it's kind of its existence in itself is kind of ironic because the pmprb's mandate is to protect Canadians from excessive drug prices, meaning that the Canadian government has decided that drug companies charge too much and they're all about money. And we often hear that they put profits before patients. And so this legislation had to be put into place to, to remedy that where the existence of the PMPRB is about money and is denying patients access to drugs because they are also all about money. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because the PMPRB assesses these drugs at their sticker price, where, like I've said, we know that that's not the actual price that is paid in Canada. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, for some reason, these price negotiations are very secretive and hush-hush and you can't ever get any information from anyone on the inside of that body on the progress of the negotiation or the price that was ultimately reached or any of that. But we know that in the dozens of other countries around the world that provide these gene modulating drugs to their citizens that you can expect at least a 50% discount off that sticker price. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, Big the difference. 
no kidding, the, the $300,000 a year sticker price is huge. But like I said, that sticker price really means nothing when it's going to be negotiated down and cut at least in half. And then furthermore, you're, you're talking about lives and it's pretty crazy to think that the government of Canada is amounting our lives to dollar figures. Mm. Wow. Uh, just kind of comparing the actual costs right now for someone with CF to go through a year with medication, with potential hospitalizations, with, you know, checkups in Halifax and comparing that to, you know, uh, let's say if Tricapta was approved, then it seems like the jump there isn't quite as big as people would think, um, especially, you know, if the price is negotiated and everything. Now, Hunter, you have been kind of an avid advocate for CF for quite some time now. Can you tell us kind of how this advocacy started for you? Yeah, so like I said, this this drug kind of became a reality last October on the 21st of October and it was noteworthy not only because this is the biggest scientific breakthrough perhaps in modern medicine but definitely within the CF community but it was also approved five months ahead of the deadline so the the information that Vertex submitted was so persuasive and so clearly beneficial that the FDA approved this in 90 days which at the time was a record for the fastest approval that the FDA has ever given to a pharmaceutical product. Um, so, you know, through doctor's appointments and speaking with others in the CF community, we, we learned more and more about this drug and started looking at why it wasn't available in Canada and why our American counterparts were going to their pharmacy and picking up their box of Trikafta and it hadn't even been approved for use in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, this time last year, I was sitting in a hospital bed 24 hours a day and you, know, you, you get lots of time to think and surf the internet while you're there. And mm -hmm. I found this group called CF Get Loud Canada and started connecting with some of the founding members of that and really started my deep dive into what is now a, a very time-consuming advocacy job almost mm -hmm. but yeah I would say it was that that initial hospital stay where I kind of had the time to really look into all this and find out how all-consuming it is and how flawed the Canadian system is that I just took it head-on and said you know somebody's got to get this drug into Canada and nobody's gonna be able to do it by themselves. Wow absolutely I think Oftentimes we find that change comes with advocacy. So we're super glad that you decided to get involved in this. Um, you've mentioned kind of some, some initiatives that you kind of have been advocating for already, including trichafta approval, including having a rare disease strategy that's pan-Canadian. Are there any other specific initiatives that you're looking at right now? Yeah, well, like I said, this is a, a very far-reaching problem and Although we've finally got Trikafta to the Health Canada and health technology level, we know that there's still a long road ahead to get this drug into the hands of patients. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my main focus right now is working at the provincial level to make sure that as soon as this drug is before the PCPA, that our provincial representatives are 
doing everything within their power to expedite those negotiations. Mm -hmm. And when those negotiations are complete, that those same representatives make sure that it's immediately listed on PEI's cystic fibrosis drug plan, mm -hmm. which as it stands outside of Manitoba, who doesn't have a CF drug plan, PEI has the worst CF drug plan in the country as far as its coverage and the restrictiveness to get onto the plan. So I've, I've been really pushing the, the health minister and the Ministry of Health to develop a better strategy to deal with these high-cost CF drugs and maybe put PEI on the map as the best CF drug program in the country as opposed to the worst. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's what we'll hope for as well, for PEI to get up there. Now, are there ways that we can keep up with your work or support your advocacy going forward? Yeah, so if anybody's interested in all of this and, you know, the, the fight to get Trikafta into the hands of Canadians and where we're currently at and what actions they can take at what specific times to have the most impact, they can go to cfgetloud.com. That's the, the website for the advocacy group that I work closely with. It's a 100% grassroots patient movement that was started by three patients on IV poles and a CF mom who had been through this several times before and adv successfully advocated for the coverage of Kaleidico in Ontario. Um, and on Facebook, the CF Get Loud community group has grown to, I believe it's now like over 4,000 people that wow. are all advocating for the same goal. And mm -hmm. the, the team there does a great job at keeping everybody updated and you know, getting initiatives moving that are going to have the most impact at the right time to finally put this ball in the end zone. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we'll definitely include that website in our communications with folks when we're, we're you know, advertising this episode. We want to make sure that folks can access that and, and can either keep up to date with being you know, what's being worked on and as well uh, get involved themselves if they'd like to. All right, we're going to transition to our last segment. Uh, as we have mentioned before in other episodes for listeners, we're now going to transition to our beer panel. This is where we showcase different beers that we've tried, if we liked, if we didn't like, if we want to, you know, give a certain brewing company a shout out, or if we want to just talk about different things. Now for listeners, Hunter is a very acclaimed chef, and we said to him now, he can either share a beer if he likes, or perhaps a dish that he has prepared for before. So we've left it up to him to decide. So now we're going to throw things over to you, Hunter. What would you like to share with listeners? Yeah, so uh, I'm the executive chef of the Table Culinary Studio in New London, and one of my goals going into this summer is to use as many local products as possible. Now, that's a, typically a buzzword in the restaurant industry, local, <laughs> but I'm trying to take it as far as to completely eliminate using products that aren't local as opposed to using as many that are local. Oh, wow. So that wow. goes as far as trying to not use lemons, limes, black pepper, things along those lines. Wow. So a recipe I've been working on is for what I'm currently dubbing a vinegar pie. Now <laughs> that, that name might change because that doesn't look too appealing on a menu. 
Um, but essentially the concept is similar to a lemon meringue pie, but instead of using lemon juice as the acid in the filling to use uh, organic apple cider vinegar, mm -hmm. something that can be made and sourced locally. Mm -hmm. um, I made it for the first time the other day, the prototype, the uh, vinegar curd with some meringue on top, but instead of your traditional lemon meringue pie meringue, that's kind of light and airy and baked. I made a, a whipped meringue, which is more like a marshmallow fluff, mm -hmm. and then piped that on top. So it's got that kind of sweet stickiness to it. Yeah. And it was it was pretty good. I think my next time I might dial back the vinegar a little bit to kind of <laughs> make it not not so obvious that it's just vinegar and sugar and marshmallow. Mm -hmm. uh, but but so far so good. It's coming along. Mm. Well, it looks like we'll have to make a trip uh, down to New London in the summer just to check it out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, awesome. Emma's looking at me right now, uh, which our listeners can't see. So I guess I'm going next. Uh, I might stick with a beer just to kind of keep it a beer panel, even though I am craving a little bit of pie right now, which is fine. <laughs> but um I think, you know, right now with the Atlantic bubble being closed, with it being cold, I've been missing summer quite a bit. Mm. So um, this past summer, we went on a trip to Nova Scotia where we tried surfing and Emma was one of maybe two people who managed to stand up on a surf. Not um, long. <laughs> I was very happy I didn't drown. So that was really <laughs> wins all around. Um, but while we were um, in Lawrencetown to surf, we had stopped by a little brewery in Dartmouth called North Brewing Company. Mm. And that's where we had had supper. It was a very interesting supper. Some folks had dumplings, other people had burgers, and it was oh, a uh. parking lot turned patio. Yeah. So that was really <laughs> cool. Um, and on that day, I tried this beer called a raspberry plush. What was interesting about it is you could have it as a slushy as opposed to your traditional beer. So that's what some folks did. Um, I had it as just a regular beer. I find that berries and beer go very well together. So that's my beer for the day, the raspberry plush. Though I did notice they have a beer that's literally called Lawrencetown, and it's supposed to be a surf session ale. So if we go back this summer, might have to try that one. Mm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was definitely like, I know Hunter is, is a connoisseur in the culinary world. I'm not sure if you would be supportive or appalled by the fact that there was a patio that was actually just a parking lot. Like there was like scraped off yellow lines on the ground, like broken up pavement. It was a true culinary experience. I don't know yeah, if you agree. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that was a, a COVID-initiated thing where they're trying to keep people outside or if that's their regular jam there. But I mean, that sounds cool to me. I'm all about kind of good food in non-casual or in non-formal uh, <laughs> atmospheres. And that, that sounds like that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. I also had a beautiful baby blue wall where you could go take pictures and they'd come out looking really nice. <laughs> Thank you, Sweta. She's, she's making fun of me. I took photos in front of the wall. They um, did turn out nice. Well, thank you. The food was also very good. Very, very, very good. Um, the beer that I'm going to showcase today for the beer panel is 
called a Partake. I had it today. It's a non-alcoholic beer. It's still doing dry January. I had the red Partake. Anyways, it was quite good. Definitely comparative to a copper bottom red. Not as good, of course. Copper bottom takes the cake, but uh, still good. Partake. So that was at uh, Hop Yard today. So nice. definitely, definitely recommend if folks are also doing dry January. It's got a good taste to it. But yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Well, I think that concludes our beer panel. Thank you so much for being with us today, Hunter, and providing such comprehensive answers. I know, you know, just to prepare for this episode, we've learned so much over the past week that, you know, it's really great to have you here. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. I mean, if if you would have asked me like 18 months ago, any of these questions, I would have had no idea. This has been kind of a dive in head first out of necessity and it's been quite the experience to learn all this stuff myself and then be able to articulate it to elected officials and mm -hmm. bureaucrats alike to kind of tell them what we need them to do to help us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's extremely commendable. It, it sounds as though you've been an expert on this your entire life and you know, the facility and the, the ease in the way that you speak and teach others on this, I know for us was extremely helpful, but as well, I'm very confident for our listeners and as well, I hope a number of different decision makers who listen will uh, definitely take away from this some really informative pieces of information and, and either, you know, use that in their day-to-day -day life or inform some decisions. So it was, it was extremely, extremely appreciated and best of luck with uh, your advocacy moving forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. We'll have a lovely rest of your evening, Hunter. You too. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for being with us again today, Hunter. And that's all the time that we have for today, folks. Hunter's going to be presenting to the Standing Committee on Health and Social Development on February 10th, starting at 10 a.m. Be sure to tune in to thelegislativeassembly.com or on Facebook at the Legislative Assembly of PEI to see Hunter present on cystic fibrosis. Also, if you would like to learn more about cystic fibrosis, check out cfgetloud.com. And as always, our opening and closing music is by the incredible Shane Pendergast. Shane has an upcoming show on January 29th at Mark's Lounge from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And that's where his single, It Slips Away, will be launched. Shane will furthermore be at Mark's Lounge again on February 12th from 9 to 12 p.m. On March 7th, his second Win album will be launched at the Trailside Music Hall from 8 to 10 again. Tickets are available at trailside.com or on Eventbrite. Stay warm and stay safe, everyone. This has been Dialogue.